So I need a little help today, and I wanted to resource and dialogue with, with you guys on, I'm trying to get a visual on love. You know, love, love is a verb, love is a noun, love is a concept, love is, is love real? Probably, I think love's real, right? I mean, but um, love doesn't necessarily present itself and shake your hand, so how can we visualize love? Well, I, I kind of thought about love, um, the way some people do love is, you know, if you're really good to them or they really feel like it today or next week, they might give you a little bitty drop occasionally. And you might get all excited because, hey, they're starting to drop a little bit in your direction, but then sometimes they hold back, right? Is that love? Is that real love? Is, is love based on, well, you know, I've got this much left. I can probably give you, I don't know, maybe just a little percent there. I just drop, maybe. Does that look like love to you guys? Love? Well, I mean, I could go to the syringe, right, and um, try to take some out, get a little bit more. And then, you know, I can put more in quickly this way, drip, drip, drip. And then, but, you know, the problem is syringes, they just... Um, does that look like love to you guys? Anybody? Anybody want to vote for, did we just move up to love at this level? What about this? Totally poured in. Does that look like love to you? Yeah. That's love. Hold that in your mind and your heart and your soul as we turn to our message for today, which is about love, and really the question that is before us in life, the essential valuation that you will make in your brief life here on earth involves love. The, the challenge is that real love cost you everything. You don't get to drib and drab and drip a little bit here. If, if we're going to even get close to talking about love, real love costs everything, but this then begs the question. It's a question that people ask when they're dating somebody else. It's a question that people ask, well, should we have children or not? It's a question that people ask on all kinds of relationships and all kinds of issues. Is love worth it? Is love worth it? Or is love a waste? love waste? I want return on my investment, and love is just not working for me like a hedge fund. So yeah, is love worth it? We each answer that question in relation to a number of temporal things. Then we answer it penultimately um, with respect to other people. And then we answer the question ultimately in relation to eternal God. Is love worth it? Is God, is she worth it? Is he worth it? Are they worth it? And then ultimately, is God worth it? So this means the essential valuation, you know we're all into valuation, right? The essential valuation you make that is of eternal consequence. You get to make one 
valuation, one central valuation that is of eternal consequence while you're here on earth. And that is, is loving God worth it? Because faith in God really flows from and circles back around to loving God. The Bible actually says that God is love. God is love. I'm going to grab this Bible. We can track along with this. I can tell you this. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we get this famous statement. God is love. God is love. Um, and it tells us that those who live in love actually live in God because God is love. Now, let me be very clear. You've got to get the order of the word, you know, order of words, subject, object, this is really important, right? This is not saying love is God. Let me repeat that. This is not saying that love is God. Well, what I just love and what I'm passionate about, that must be God. So they all kind of fuse together. No, that is not what that's saying. Classically speaking, and I do mean literally classically speaking, in Greco-Roman classic uh, mythology, you know, Eros himself, right, which is one of the Greek words for love, Eros, like, you know, romantic, passionate love. Eros was a god. Originally, and this makes a lot of sense to me, in the really proto-mythology of Greece, Eros was the son of chaos. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> chaos is not a nice god, okay? Chaos is like big, kind of evil, murky. And Eros, romantic and sexual passion, was the son of chaos, but then we got a little more polite and politically correct, you know, as civilization moved on, and it was clarified that, well, actually, Eros is the son of the goddess Aphrodite, you know, beautiful. I mean, it's really kind of dressed up a little bit. But nevertheless, the point is that love, as we define it, as we exude it, as we express it, uh, can be dangerous idolatry. You get the point? Okay. In fact, as C.S. Lewis talks about a lot of times, and other writers have talked about, you know, eros is sometimes a god and sometimes a demon, right? So and all our love can be demonic, because the truth is more atrocities and more horrible things to individual people have been done in the name of love than pretty much anything else, right? Storge, love of family and country, man, people have been uh, burned, at, you know, burned all over the place, stormed, enslaved, in the name of Storge. I just love my family and my country. Um, I'm going to go to war and kill off all those bad people because they're not part of my tribe, right? This is, that kind of love can be dangerous and is definitely not God, right? So you got to get the order right. Not love is God, you hear me? But God is love. Now, how do you define that? Well, as I said, that, that love, uh, God is love is from 1 John 4, 8. You, you go down a couple of verses and you read this. Okay, let's define love. In this is love. Not that we loved God. In other words, it's not tit for tat, right? If you say you love me, I'll tell you I love you. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. And gave his son 
as a propitiation for our sin. It's, it's incredible. God, God, God didn't drip at all. God totally poured out his precious son. That's love. And Jesus goes on and, and puts it another way on the night before Jesus goes to the cross. If you go over to John's gospel, chapter 15, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I mean, that's, that's real love. I mean, that's not dripping. That's not a little tad here or there. That's totally pouring out, right? He laid down his life for his friends. But you see, that, I mean, godly love, who God is and what his love is about, makes a huge, all-encompassing claim on us. I mean, it cost him everything, but it, in, in a sense, it's freely given to us by grace, but it's commanding everything from us, right? It's commanding our whole response. So Jesus puts it this way. In that, in that same passage, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples as, as Jesus is preparing to die the next day. He says this, John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will live in my love. You'll remain, like for real. You'll really live. You'll remain in my love. If you obey my commandments. Did you hear that? So, so he, he, the one who pours out his love for us, is asking us to respond fully. It's not just, well, Jesus, I do love you. I mean, I'll sing a song to you here or there on Sunday morning, but... I mean, actually trying to follow a lot of what's in here is confusing and challenging to me, and it's not very popular right now in our culture. So, Jesus, I do love you, but God bless you, you poor thing. Now, just go on. No, no, Jesus says, if you obey me, if you obey my commandments, then you will live in my love, and my love lives in you. So, that, that's what Jesus says. All of this brings us back to this question, which is both an affirmation and a question for today's sermon. The sermon is love, a waste or worth it? A waste or worth it all? And for our scriptures for today, we're going to be back in Mark's gospel as we move towards the conclusion of this whole series on Mark's gospel. We've pretty much covered all the way through, you know, back in Easter, resurrection, and we've been working our way back through really digging into um, the last section of the three sections of Mark's gospel. Today, we're going to pick up and we're going to read, just um, go backwards a little bit and read from chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, and then move ahead to kind of where we've been focusing on uh, the last few weeks, which is Mark chapter 14, the beginning part of that. So, invite you to turn with me, or you can watch up on the screen, I believe, as we look first to Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. The context of this is right after Jesus, the, the rich young ruler, has said, Jesus, I'll do anything. I just want to live forever. I want to have eternal life. I want to inherit the kingdom. And um, I've been really good, and I'm really earnest, and I'm, I'm ready to stand up and raise my hand at a rally, uh, you know, Jesus, and sign the card or whatever else you need from me, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, you know, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. 
and then come follow me. And if you're following me, you will live forever. And the rich young ruler goes away really sad because he had lots of stuff. Remember that story? So this is in follow-up to that. After Jesus has told his disciples, it's going to be harder um, for a rich person to enter the kingdom, to, to have eternal life, to be saved, because they just hang on to so much. They want to hang on to so much. Their, their trust is in their stuff here than it, than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So then after that, Jesus says this. Jesus said, a main... I say to you, and whenever you know this, you've heard this from me dozens of times, in Mark's gospel and in the gospels, whenever Jesus says, amen, which means truly, I tell you, okay, and then he says, I tell you this, that means the disciples then and we now are supposed to pay really close attention. He's going to teach us two different things in the passages we're reading here where he says this. Amen, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come what the rich young ruler is looking for right eternal life i want to be in heaven yeah you'll get that jesus says whoever gives up here on earth will receive countless more unto eternal life. Then um, over to Mark 14. Again, Mark 14, the opening verses start what's called the passion narrative. The last, we're kind of cruising towards the final, into the final section of Mark's last part of his gospel. Then you get the resurrection account in chapter 16. But 14, 15, passion narrative. Passion comes from the Latin that means to endure, okay? to endure, what Jesus is going to endure for our salvation. So we pick up the story, and here we are in Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Let me just tell you this as I read through it so you can be aware of this. This is another intercalated sandwich of Mark. I've been telling you all, teaching you all about that all as we move through Mark. Mark likes to give us sandwiches where you got something on one side, like the bread on one side, something on the other, the bread on the other side. They're important, but the meat's in the middle, okay? Or the fruit or the vegetable. If you're a vegetarian, hey, the vegetable's in the middle, whatever. The main thing's in the middle, okay? So we got the chief priest being really bad, wanting to take Jesus out. We're going to have Judas on the other side of the sandwich going along, right, playing into their hands, and in the middle, we're going to have a story about a woman anointing Jesus, okay? So, heads up on this, and let's read through it. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he, as Jesus, was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure, no, pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And amen, here it is again, and amen, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to hand him over to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. They rejoiced and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to hand him over, to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So it was two days, Mark tells us at the beginning of this sandwich story, uh, before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we're sometime in between Monday and Wednesday, depending on what timing you're looking at with Jewish timing. Um, the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. Don't they sound like nice people? And then to kill him. But they have a problem, okay? Even though the crowds are not ultimately going to stick with Jesus, he's still popular. I mean, even though he's confused a lot of people with his teaching and he's not come down as the revolutionary who's going to drive out the Romans this week of Passover and liberate Israel, nevertheless, he's popular. Even the crowds love it when he took down on Tuesday in the temple precincts. In, in rapid succession, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, uh, the Sadducees. I mean, he took them all down and it says that the, the crowds were delighted at the way he, he made fun of the bad theology and stupid alignments of the religious leaders. So Jesus is popular kind of with the, the, the fickle crowd, but I mean, he's still popular. Remember, there are at least five times as many people packed into Jerusalem and Jerusalem's outer areas as there are normally. You've got a ton of people, okay? And, and you know what? If you try to do something publicly, like try to arrest Jesus in front of tens of thousands of people, maybe thousands of them are his fans, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have a riot really fast. So they, they've got a dilemma on the front side of this story. Okay, that's part of the sandwich. They've got the, we've got this lingering dilemma. We really want to take him out, but hopefully he stays past the Feast of Unleavened Bread because I don't see how we can do it in the next week and a half. There's just too many people here. We're going to get in trouble. Okay, that's their dilemma. Um, so then we go into this central story. Now, this could very well be a flashback, okay, to several days earlier than this. According to John's gospel, if we've got the two stories connected here, what Matthew and Mark tell us about and what John chapter 12 tells us about, this is actually Mary, the sister of Lazarus, Mary of Bethany, whose big sister's named Martha. Um, she's the one who does this anointing. And, and according to John, this happens on Saturday before Palm Sunday, okay? So we could be having a flashback here, and this is a flashback that we're being told is what, because you're sitting there saying, how could Judas, one of the 12, get together with these guys that we've just read about? I mean, even if he's got questions about Jesus, what? And, and 
Mark is telling us this is the story. This is the incident that apparently puts Judas over the edge. It seems to be what Mark is basically conveying to us. And, and while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, uh, this means, in other words, read between the lines here, this is a leper who's been healed, okay, because otherwise he can't host this big <laughs> feast. And we would guess, right, he's throwing a feast for Jesus, so whom do you think healed Simon? Probably Jesus, right? It's just one of those miracle stories. You know, Jesus heals all kinds of people that are not told about. But Simon the leper, or the former leper, decides to host this big feast for Jesus in Bethany. And while Jesus was reclining at table, a woman, a woman, woman is not supposed to walk into the middle of a feast where the big guys are reclining at table, okay? This is, this is shocking. A woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Okay, this isn't watered down. This isn't like, uh, this isn't like standard parfum, right? I mean, we're, we're talking pure nard or murin, okay? You know, you've heard of myrrh before, right? In the, in, in the Jesus story, right? Where else do you hear about myrrh? Like with the Magi, right? Oil, I mean, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And remember from the, like, we three kings, right? Myrrh is used for what? Burial, right? But it's really valuable. It's really sweet-smelling. And you know what? Like one little drop, one little drop of pure nard, I mean, it's kind of like, ladies, if you had, like, I mean, the real stuff, I mean, w w would you maybe, like, do, like, a fraction of one drop, maybe, if you were going out on a big party night or something? I mean, maybe, like, one little drop, you know? And, and this, this flask, I mean, you know, you've put the nard inside of it, right? It's been put inside, so you can open it back up and give maybe, I don't know, just a little drop. Because, I mean, it's worth thousands, and th the whole thing's worth tens of thousands of dollars. And, and the woman, though, we're told, she comes in with this alabaster flask. I mean, it's a really valuable flask, by the way, too. Ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she doesn't, like, kind of just take a little bit of it, right? Because it would have filled the whole house, just, just a couple of little drops of it. She breaks the flask. That means there's no going back. Do you hear me? There is no going back. She breaks the flask. And put, don't drop it over, pours it over his head, the whole thing. <laughs> it, it, it is likely that this is this woman's family heirloom. I mean, this is worth more than a, than, than a working man, a fairly uh, you know, skilled working man would make in an entire year, okay? You're talking tens and tens of thousands of dollars. She breaks it open. And the, understand this, this is her heirloom. If this is Mary... Of Bethany specifically, we know that basically we've got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? Daddy and Mama are gone. So as I said a couple weeks ago, this most likely would also be her dowry. If this woman wants to marry and marry well, she needs a dowry. And it's like she's taking her dowry and breaking the whole thing and pouring it on Jesus. It's incredible.
Now, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted? Can't you just hear them? They're saying it to themselves. Matthew goes ahead and tells us a little bit more that some of these folks complaining are Jesus' own disciples. Does that shock you, that Christians would complain about, like, money things and what somebody else did and critique somebody else? Well, yeah, some of the disciples, they're complaining about it. And then John steps it up even further. Just like sometimes Simon, is, Simon Peter is the lead spokesman for the disciples. In this case, the lead complainer. You know, God hates complainers, right? But anyway, there's, you get them all the time, all over the place, right? The lead complainer, it turns out, is Judas. Because John tells us he held the treasury, and he was really into money, and he was really upset <laughs> about this waste of all this money that he could have managed in the treasury and taken some for himself. That's what John tells us, too, in the, in the Mary of Bethany story. So why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment, there's a couple reasons, I mean, we can give here. So, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, more than a year's pay, okay? I mean, this, this, this could go, like, heading up towards six figures. <laughs> and, and could have been, hey, given to the poor, come on. Now, now, we ourselves, you know, even though it's Passover, haven't taken a collection for the poor yet, but, but this could have been used. I mean, we could have taken some of this for the poor, like a lot of times in the gospel and the way Jesus ministers, people rebuke other people and Jesus comes back on them, right? So you get the rebuke and the counter rebuke. And here it is again. But they're rebuking, shaming this woman publicly. I mean, can you imagine this? Women, can you imagine this? You've come in and done this and she's being shamed in front of, here comes Jesus. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I mean, not just kind of a drop, right? She, she's done the Kalon Aragon, which is the strong translation here, which is fine, is a beautiful thing, a really, really good thing. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on, prophesying, look, folks, my hour has come. In John's gospel, you read it, Jesus literally says, my hour has come. Here he's saying it this way, okay? My hour has come. I'm about to die, folks. Seven, for you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Attention, the hour is here. Note, if you're with me on Wednesday night, you know this already. I kind of unpacked this a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night Bible study. You go through the first book of the Psalms, you get to the final Psalm, right? The ultimate of the book one of the Psalms, Psalms of David, right? You get the opening beatitude, blessed is the man who, okay? Then you get the... Uh, Psalm 2, the Psalm of the Messiah, okay, being the Son of God. And then you get 39 Psalms of David, the rest of Book 1. And the last one is a beatitude. And it says, Blessed is the man, is the one who considers the poor. Okay? That's a, that's a scripture, Amy quoted it earlier, um, that can be used and certainly was used as an encouragement to give to the poor. But the actual background on this is it's a Psalm of David when David has been treasonously. Uh, turned over by, you know, I mean, basically Ahithophel has turned against David and gone over to Absalom, David's rebellious son, right? And Jesus, on the, uh, you know, as he goes to the cross, claims this psalm, like all the others. They're all about Jesus, right? He says, Psalm 41, do you guys not get this? It's about me. It's about me. Because he says, he specifically quotes it when he talks about Judas. You can read this in John's gospel. 41.9, Psalm 41.9, 
the one who, my close friend, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is saying that's Judas. Well, so who is the poor who is blessed, who has given to the poor? Jesus says, it's ultimately all about me. I am both the one who gives to the poor. Let me just make this really clear. I am the one who is ultimately impoverished for your salvation. And I am the one who gives to the poor. So the beatitude is ultimately for me, for my father. And this woman who has just done a beautiful thing for me, the impoverished that all of you who are forsaking and thinking about yourselves, she's just loved me. She's been the father's expression of love for me to prepare me for my burial. Because you know I'm going to be stripped and beaten. My back's going to be torn up by scourging. You're not going to be there to anoint me prepare me for burial. And when they take me down like a criminal, they don't know this, but yes, Nicodemus and Joseph Arathia will on the other side anoint him again. But in the meantime, when he's dead, hanging on the cross, the one person who has tended to him with anointing for burial is this woman. And so he says, verse 8, she has done what she could. Literally, she has done what she had. What she had, everything she had, she poured it out. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So he's giving another prophecy among his many that I'm about to die, okay? And she's the one that God has used to prepare me for it. None of you, she. And then verse 9, Jesus says, Amen, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world. James and John, I know you all want to be famous. Simon, I know you really want to be famous. Judas, I know you're really upset about a lot of things and you thought you were going to be the big man on campus because you were with the 12 and it's turning out that you're really hating everything I'm doing. She's the one who's going to be proclaimed around the world. And notice this, Mark is really emphasizing this. It's for what she did, not for her name. So John may be giving her her name to us, right? Mary of Bethany. But Mark's point and what Jesus is saying here is, I mean, the only person named, the only two people named in this whole story are Simon the leper, right? And then Jesus in Mark. Because the point is not her name, it's what she does. Because is love about getting a name for yourself? Let me ask you that. Is love about getting a name for yourself? My name will live in history. Does that sound like love? No. Love is about, no matter what, pouring it all out. So then, of course, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went out to the chief priest in order to betray him. Great. Now we have our issue resolved. We don't have to arrest him in public. This dude, Judas, is going to tell us a time and a place where we can take him secretly when the crowds aren't around. He's going to take us to Gethsemane when Jesus is there. And we'll take him then without a riot. And sure enough, verse 11... When they heard it, they were glad. This could be translated, they rejoiced. This is the rejoicing in the story, right? Praise be to God. They're really happy. But of course, their God, as it turns out, is Satan, as it is with Judas. Their love is God turns out to be wrong. It's not love is God. It's God is love. 
And you know what? If you just read on a little bit in the story in Mark chapter 14, Jesus ultimately defines the love. At the Last Supper, which is just a few verses down, Mark 14, verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is, what? Poured out for many. So in Mark 14, leading up to the cross, we have the woman who pours, right? She poured it all out on his head. And the Savior who pours. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's love. That will save you. Don't hold back. Come to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.